Hey, Overlick, this is Pastor Eugene. What a pleasure and an honor to rejoin you again as we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. As we're studying through the Gospel of John, today we're going to be focused on John chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. It's the story of Jesus' encounter or the Samaritan's encounter with Jesus Christ, the Samaritan woman at the well. So if you have your Bibles with you, let's turn now to John chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. John chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. Now listen for the word of God. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Here is verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Friends, I want to reread verse 4 one more time, and it says, Now he, referring to Jesus, had to go through Samaria. I know that many of us are familiar with this particular story. It's a story that deeply resonates, convicts me every single time I read or I teach from the story. I love this story because I believe that it beautifully embodies what I articulate as the whole gospel. That Jesus both saves, but Jesus is also at work in our larger culture, redeeming, restoring, reconciling the world back unto himself. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is that it should matter to us as followers of Jesus that Jesus saves sinners like you and me. That Jesus loves every single person. And I pray that in a fast-changing, pluralistic world, that you and I as followers of Jesus would never be shy, never be timid about sharing the good news that Jesus came to rescue and save the lost. Don't be timid about sharing this. That means that Jesus not only loves you and me, he loves Palestinians and Jews, Americans and Canadians, Koreans and Japanese, Republicans and Democrats, and the list goes on. Jesus even loves, wait for it, Patriots fans. I just said it. That's the power of the gospel. But in addition to this, if we limit the gospel only to a personal salvation, 
that what happens, especially in a very consumeristic society, is that we reduce the gospel to me, myself, and I. My Wednesday night, my church, my overlake, my small group, my quiet time, my family, and we lose an imagination of God's love for the nations. God's love for the world, God's love for justice, God's love for reconciliation, God's love for immigrants and migrants, the poor, the oppressed. God loves the larger world. So this story is powerful because I want you to realize that Jesus engages this Samaritan woman at the well, one, because he wants this Samaritan woman to have an encounter with him the living water of God. But in addition to this, we learn in verse four that Jesus had to walk through Samaria. And Jesus had to walk through Samaria because during this historical cultural context, people that were of Jewish descent did not walk through that space. Now, let's take a step back and I wanna refer you to a map right here. Now friends, I want you to realize that you don't have to be a rocket scientist physicist to know that the quickest route from point A to point B is a straight line. So here I am right now, Savan, my favorite overlaker, who's now manning this camera, for the fastest way for me to get to him is a straight line. I'm coming in for a kiss, man. That's it, I'm here. Took maybe seven steps. That's the quickest way. But during this time, people took a very long, circuitous route because in the middle, there was a group of land called Samaria occupied naturally by a group of people called Samaritans. So let's look at this map. Here's a general map that you see in the back of your Bibles. Scripture tells us in John chapter 4 that Jesus and the disciples are currently in Judea. They want to go up north to Galilee. Now again, straight line, they can be there probably within a couple days. But Scripture tells us, or historians tell us, that because of this group of land called Samaria, what they often did is they traveled east, they crossed the Jordan River for extra protection because after centuries of tension and hostilities and misunderstanding, what transpired was that they began to dehumanize. They saw Samaritans as lesser than people. Now we'll get to it. My point from this map is I want you to realize where they are, where they're wanting to go, and the fact that the reality was most folks took a long, circuitous route to get to Galilee. This is why verse 4 is so powerful. Don't miss it. Now, he, referring to Jesus, had to go through Samaria. 
It's not recorded in the scripture, but I am certain that when Jesus tells the disciples, we're going to have to walk through Samaria, they most likely went, whoa, 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 are you serious? Are you crazy? Are you insane? Do you not know that there are Samaritans in this land and it's dangerous, it's scary, they're thugs, and the list goes on. That's the context of this story and why it's so powerful that Jesus goes to Sychar to speak to the depth of the Samaritan woman to let her know that you matter to God, that God loves you, but in going through Samaria to also address the whole gospel. Both must matter to us as followers of Jesus. In other words, the great commission and the great commandment are not competitors to each other. They both matter to God. So let's go dive into this story. The first thing that I want to share with you about this is that I want you to realize that you can't just talk about Samaria. You have to walk through Samaria. This is why Jesus, in his own words, tells his disciples, you must count the cost, carry your cross, and follow me. In other words, in our world today, in the midst of so much social unrest and racial injustice and the conversations of me too, I'm not suggesting that we as Christians follow the larger banter of our cultural times, but reconciliation is at the core of our ministry and our identity as followers of Jesus. In other words, we love the idea of justice and reconciliation until we realize that reconciliation involves confessing and confronting and truth-telling, repenting and dismantling and forgiving. This is why the work of reconciliation is not an easy thing. And this is why people altogether avoided Samaria during the time of Jesus. Now, I know that some of you might feel offended by what I'm about to say, but I truly believe that during the time of Jesus, if there were such things as hashtags during the time of Jesus, Jesus would have said, Samaritan lives matter. You see, Jesus went through Samaria with a determined and resolute mind to break down barriers of hatred and cultural, ethnic, racial prejudice to replace these by building bridges of forgiveness, reconciliation, peace, love, and hope. In other words, to turn things upside down with the kingdom of God. See, you can't just talk about Samaria. You have to walk through Samaria. St. Francis of Assisi gave us powerful words in one of his journals when he said, it is no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. Listen to this again, friends. You can talk about Samaria. You can sing. You can sing about Samaria. You could spit rhymes. You could high church liturgize about Samaria. You could strategize, theologize, hashtag about Samaria. You can do all of these things and still not walk through Samaria. That's the reason why verse 4, I keep coming back to it. 
now Jesus had to walk through Samaria. Here's the second point that I want you to understand from this passage, and what's the core reason why there's division, animosity, and conflict between Jews and Samaritans. Some of you might think that I'm oversimplifying all of the tension that exists all around the world, whether it's war, whether it's race, whether it's gender, but for me, I believe the core reason, the fundamental reason is because of something called dehumanization, is when we see other human beings as lesser than. See, dehumanization is the absolute antithesis, the opposite of the imago Dei. This truth that we believe every single human being is created in the image of God. Every single human being, including your enemies, is fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. That's what transpires with the relationship with Jews and Samaritans, starting from 2 Kings chapter 17 in the Old Testament. And I don't have the time to go into a long graphics about how this started, but it begins with conflict because of misunderstanding And rather it being resolved, it begins to fester, it begins to grow, it begins to perpetuate, not just between individuals, but then groups of people, between an entire races of people, and not just for a moment, but actually for decades, centuries, and generations upon generations. Even now, I've had the privilege of traveling around the world in areas of deep conflict, and I'll ask people respectfully, why do you hate these groups of people? And so many times I've heard these words, I'm not quite sure, but that's what I was told. That's what I was taught. It's in the very air that we breathe, the very water that we drink. You see, Jews looked upon Samaritans as not fully equal. Dirty, unclean, inferior, half-breeds, contaminated, lesser than, and as a result, dehumanized, otherized, villainized. That only leads to deep-seated division. And after a while, when you dehumanize another person or a group of people, it leads to a justification of words, treatment, prejudice, racism, and abuse. And when you think this way, eventually you'll justify actions, words, and even policies that demean, degrade, and dehumanize other people. Let me give you some examples historically of dehumanization. Nazis referred to Jews simply as rats. Human beings created in the image of God as rats. In the Rwandan genocide, Hutus called Tutsis cockroaches. Enslaved African Americans were compared to apes or monkeys, and the list goes on. So what then is the remedy, the antidote, the medicine, the truth to dehumanization? Well, as I shared earlier, we have to be reminded that every single being is created in the image of God. Psalm 139, 14, fearfully and wonderfully made. Every single human being. 
And if we believe this, then we have to remember to look into the eyes of humanity. Some years ago when I was a college student, I double majored in psychology and theater. I wasn't a very good thespian, a very good actor. I was only cast for maybe two parts. And in one of those parts, I was playing a homeless man. After rehearsals, the director came up to me and very candidly said, Eugene, you're not very good. Hurt me. And he said, Eugene, if you care about your art, I want to release you from practice. And I actually want to challenge you to live out in the streets for a week, come back to rehearsals next week. I took that challenge to heart, went out to the streets of San Francisco with some of the bad stereotypes that I had, made a sign, wore a hat, I got a seating bag, and out on the streets of San Francisco on Market Street in front of a department store called Emporiums that no longer exists. I didn't make it for a full week. Survived for four days, three nights. And I'll never forget that experience. Because as I sat out on the cold streets of Market Street in San Francisco, for four days, three nights, literally thousands upon thousands of people walked past. On occasion, there were those who would hurl their change my way. Enough that I was able to at least scrounge up to have at least one meal each day. But what I remember to this day that I pray I would never forget is that despite the fact that thousands of people walked past, no one would look at me in the eyes. I've never felt so dehumanized, never felt so insignificant, inconsequential, so invisible. This is the reason why, as I've shared with you before, Jesus performs amazing miracles throughout the Gospels. Ones that we preach about again and again, I think, perhaps the most significant miracle of all is that God came to us in flesh and bone to walk among us, and he looks at us in the eyes to say, I see you. I love you. Can you imagine how powerful it must have been for Jesus to look at this Samaritan woman at the well and to say, I see you. Now let's talk about the Samaritan woman at the well. There's three reasons why she was dehumanized. And Jesus addresses all three of these things simply by being fully present. The three things, one is that she was a Samaritan. We've spoken about that at length. Number two is that she was one of suspicious character. And that's saying it very, very politely. We're not quite sure all of the details, but the larger news, the larger umbrella about her character is that what? She's had multiple husbands, five husbands. And she's the person that no matter where she walked, no matter where she roamed around her neighborhood, her town, Sychar, people gossiped. She's the woman with multiple husbands. She's licentious. She's a slut. In fact, I still remember as a non-believer 
In my younger days exploring Christianity, I still remember a pastor giving a sermon on John 4, and he simply referred to this woman as, quote, the whore from four. Sometimes I'm stunned by the ways that we, maybe even myself, maybe you, the ways that we speak of other human beings. In fact, the truth is we don't quite know all the details of those marriages. Maybe one of her husbands died. Maybe during the time when husbands could divorce their wives for the craziest reasons like, I don't like your hair. Divorce. Walk away. But our assumption, particularly from a patriarchal society, is to always pin the blame on the woman. The third reason is because she's simply a woman. That's the reason why religious leaders, the Pharisees, when they were out praying in public, and friends, listen, Jesus is not against praying in public. He's against praying in public for the sake of being seen praying in public. Those are two radically different things. So the Pharisees were out in public to be seen praying in public, and they were known for their prayers of gratitude. Do I look spiritual? They were known for their prayers of gratitude where they thanked Yahweh for three things. God, thank you that I am a Jew and not a Gentile. God, thank you that I am a free man and not a slave. And the third one I thought was a kicker. God, thank you that I am a man and not a woman. That's the reason why Galatians 3.28 is so powerful. There is neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but we are one in Christ Jesus. Man, I really wish we had some folks here in the sanctuary because that was a Pentecostal moment right there. We are one in Christ Jesus. So yes, the opposite of dehumanization is that we have to see that every single human being matters to God. And here's the next point. The next point then is not just to see, but to know that we're bound together. We're connected together. We are in relationship together. In other words, I want you to realize relationships matter to Jesus. And therefore, relationships must matter to the people of God. Let me just give you some statistics. I'm running out of time, but these statistics really matter. After the death of Michael Brown in St. Louis some time ago in Ferguson, there were some sociological studies that began to relay the, the nature of relationships in America. Now granted, these surveys are limited. It wasn't about the entire nation, but I thought they were so significant and so important. In a hundred friend scenario, they began to conduct research and survey about what relationships and friendships look like for white people, for black people, for Asian people, for Latino people. And here's the results of the statistic. In a hundred friend scenario, the average white person has 91 white friends, one each of black, one Latino, one Asian, 
one mixed race, one other race, and three friends of unknown races. The average black person, on the other hand, has 83 black friends, which makes sense because the larger population has more people that are white. Eight white friends, two Latino friends, this is going to hurt me, zero Asian friends. What's up? I'm just kidding. Three mixed races friends, one other race friend, and four friends of unknown race. For Asian Americans, we're among some of the most insular groups of people. Here's my question to you. In our nation, in our cities, sometimes even in our churches, we're trying to have conversations of such intensity, such significance and pain And the reality is we actually don't know people that we're having conversations about. This is the reason why Jesus defied the status quo of his time and he begins to engage in friendships and relationships of the most unthinkable, unfathomable situations. Listen to what the Samaritan woman says. It is such a profound question. She's stunned, and she asks, uh, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Translation, we're not supposed to be talking. We're not supposed to be having this potential relationship, friendship. Rather than thinking and being enslaved by the rhetoric of the larger culture and society, my encouragement and exhortation to every single one of us is may the kingdom of God be that which forms and transforms us and commissions us into our larger culture and society. Now here's the last point that I'm going to make and I'm going to ask some friends to join me to help make an illustration. I want you to realize that hearts matter. Hearts need to change But structures must also change. I get frustrated sometimes when Christians emphasize one or just the other. So I agree with you. We could change structures. Let's just say 4 o'clock, 4 p.m. PST, God answers all of our prayers, all injustices, all isms, racism, sexism, xenophobia, whatever it might be, classism, and the list goes on. 4 p.m., God answers our prayers, and everything is redeemed and restored and reconciled to God. Praise God. But if hearts also don't change with it, guess what happens at 4.01 p.m.? It begins again. The spiral, the consequences of our sin, our greed, our selfishness all over again. But at the same time, there are Christians who would say it's only about hearts. If hearts change, then everything else changes. And I want to give you an illustration to point why both matter in our pursuit of the kingdom of God. So friends, why don't you come and join us here? Here are our three friends. Obviously, you know these are legends at Overlake. This is your favorite boy band. 
I don't know if you have a name yet, but we have to think of a name. Write down your suggestions for boy band names. So listen, when human beings gather together, anthropologists, sociologists, they tell us that there's a system of doing things that we as human beings do. Some might call it culture. We create culture, a way of interacting, a way of talking, a way of greeting, but it's actually a bit more complex. The more that we stay in relationship, we realize, hey, we should figure out what housing looks like for us, what entertainment looks like, what education, what medicine, what architecture, what music, what religion, and the list goes on and on. Now, it's not just these three or us four. The reality is as human beings, the natural inclination is that we're going to create culture that does what? It serves us. It benefits us. So as four men, we're going to create culture that benefits us. That's what happens. So some of you might think, well, you know, I kind of disagree with you. It's a heart issue. If Pastor Pat's heart changes, then systems might change. See, the thing is, broken people sometimes, oftentimes create broken systems. Let me say that again. Broken people, of which I am one, every one of these, we're all broken. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Broken people create broken systems. So you might say, I get that if Pastor Pat's heart changes. So he comes off to a revival at Overlake. His heart changes. We're really grateful. He encounters Jesus, which is good because you're a pastor here. He encounters Jesus, praise the Lord, and he goes back into this community. Great. But as his heart changes, if there isn't intentionality, if there isn't focus on acknowledging and naming systems or structures that were created that were antithetical to the kingdom of God, it just persists and it continues to benefit us. So let me ask a couple more volunteers to join. So we have our sisters at Overlake. Yes, go ahead and line up, but uh, I hate to do this to you guys. I don't want you to line up in the front. Let's have you in the back. Don't get upset. Um, Neely, email yourself, okay? <laughs> so here they are. And we'll say, wow, Overlake, we embrace women and men. We want to empower both genders. Everyone is created. But I'm just, it's possible that in churches, in our culture, we'll put women in the back. Be silent. Wear a mask. See what I did there? Um, just do weddings, administration, children's ministry. You're gifted in children's ministry. Hey, thanks for coming. We'll see you next week. You see, hearts matter. Absolutely. A to the men, hearts must change. Never relinquish that truth. But I think we're being naive if we don't acknowledge the structures, the systems we create. Why don't we invite another group of folks to come join us? We have some friends at Overlake, legends in their own right. Bro, come on, man. In the back, all right? In the back. 
And so we'll say, hey, as a church, we want to embrace all nations, all people, all cities. But if we're not careful, what we'll end up doing is we'll say, we invite you, we want you here. But again, even unintentionally, we'll place people in the fringes saying, we want you to adopt to our culture, our systems, our way of doing things. Now, I don't know about you, as I'm looking at this, this doesn't compel me with an imagination of the kingdom of God that Jesus speaks of and that revelation gives us deep, deep invitation to. It's not easy, but when we acknowledge that hearts must change and that our culture must change, can we just line up in what we desire to be? This is the hard work. This is the imagination that the kingdom of God gives us. Now, if I can just, as a brother in Christ, speak to our sisters in Christ here. Well, we want you to know we see you, we love you, we honor you. We want to be led by you. We want to stand with you. We want you to know we can't be the church without you. If I can speak to our sisters and brothers of color, we repent if we've ever tokenized you. We repent. And our desire is to say, we need you. We can't be the whole church of the whole gospel for the whole people without you. And I want to just acknowledge that in our context today, where there feels to be a lot of just anger and animosity towards, if I can just be candid, white people, but particularly white men, we want to speak a different kingdom imagination where it's not about us degrading one people and elevating others, but to acknowledge that you matter to Jesus. This is the imagination that the kingdom of God is all about. And so I pray that as we continue our study to the gospel of John, God might breathe into you a fresh imagination of the kingdom of God. Friends, would you pray with me? Wherever you are, would you just bow your heads just for a moment? And I want to just give you that space right now, wherever you are, to give space for the Holy Spirit to speak to you. God, we thank you so much for the living word of God. Thank you that in a world and a culture that's screaming and shouting, finger-pointing, lambasting, shaming that we can come to the Word of God and we can come to Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for modeling the utter necessity for both hearts to change and for culture to change. We believe the Great Commission and the Great Commandment 
are two sides of the same coin, the whole gospel. Holy Spirit, would you breathe anew your conviction, your courage, your humility. Breathe your word upon this church, upon every single person. God, I pray that men and women, that our youth students, our elementary students, our sisters and brothers of ethnicities and nations, that every single person would be welcome to the table and be empowered just as this woman was empowered and seen. And because she was, she goes back to her village, the very village that ostracized her and marginalized her. And she was so compelled by the gospel of Jesus, she becomes the most underrated evangelist in church history bringing so many people to come to know Jesus. That's the revival we pray for, God. God, thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you.